Good morning. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Uh, we've come in our uh, journey through Acts to chapter 18, and we are in Corinth, and we're going to read verses 5 through 11, uh, only those verses from chapter 18, and consider them this morning. <clears throat> you see your uh, passage in the bulletin on page 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray a bit. Lord, open up our eyes to receive your word, to love your word, to live out your word, and to make your word known. Oh, Lord, bless us by your mighty power, we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We have to keep several perspectives as uh, believers. One that's pretty obvious is uh, there's what you and I see and then there's and know, and then there's what God sees and knows. Our knowledge is partial, His is complete. Our knowledge is teeny tiny, right? And His is unlimited. But there's also this other aspect of our Christian life where there's what we have to do or what we're called to do as the people of God. And then there's what God has promised to do. And we obey because of his promise. And we want to look at that this morning. Now, I want to give an example of that from Philippians chapter 2 before we actually get started on our passage. In Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Salvation there means sanctification. It means growth. And it's a very strong word, work out. It means accomplish your salvation. Uh, Do, produce your salvation. Bring about your salvation. The fact is, make sure you're growing in grace. Now, you go and get that done. You do it, right? That's the feel. But... Then the promise in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his pleasure. And that's a strong promise, right? It is God who is busy getting this job done in you. You know, the creator of the whole universe. So let's take uh, Subway. They've opened and run 42,000 stores around the world, right? Well, God has opened and run and is running billions of galaxies 
with billions of stars in each one of them. That's the God that is working you. That's his point. It is God that's working you. So that you will desire to do what pleases him and so that you will actually do what pleases him. That's an encouraging promise. And with that promise, he says, so go and get her done, right, so to speak. Go and do this because God is working in you. Well, this combination of what we're called to do and what God promises to do is is no more uh, uh, important than it is in our gospel mission, which is what we have titled this whole series in Acts, the gospel mission. And here we're going to see the gospel mission, as I see there on page, as you can see there on page seven, on the ground, that is what we see, what we do, and then uh, just to keep the analogy in the air, that is what God sees, what God has promised, what God is doing. So, Paul went to the synagogue, we read, in Corinth every Saturday, persuading uh, the Jews and Gentiles that attended there that, that the Messiah is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now, soon most of the Jews opposed him, and in language from Ezekiel, he says, your blood is on your head. That means judgment has been brought on you by yourself. Now, if I had failed to teach you the word, then judgment's on me, but I didn't, and so judgment is on you. He separated himself out, and he goes to the Gentiles. Now, Titius Justice was a Gentile, and his house just happened to be right next to the synagogue. Kind of a nice little slick providence, I think. And then on top, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, became a believer with his whole household. So up till now, in all of Paul's missionary work, we've had this pattern. Preaching, persecution, push on to the next city. Preaching, persecution that drives him out, push on to the next city. And maybe Paul was already bracing for that here. Maybe Paul was even a little battle-weary here, a little spiritually and emotionally shell-shocked. He did write to the Corinthians later, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Well, here then is where we go from what we see and know to what God sees and knows. And so we go to the gospel mission in the air, right? That God has a people and they will receive the gospel by his grace. And the effect of this vision as it comes to Paul is, uh, this is not, this is a paraphrase and kind of an expansion, but Paul, I know what your experience has been with this preaching persecution and push on, but it's not going to happen now. And in words that we hear so often in the Old Testament, I am with you. Specifically, I'm with you to protect you so that no harm will come to you and you will be able to stay and preach the word. Why? Because I have many people in this city. There are many people in the city that are mine. And so Luke tells us Paul stayed there a year and a half because of this vision. He, he knew that this is going to be different than anything else that's happened up to now. I'm going to stay here a while and proclaim the word. Now, when Jesus says here that I have many people in this city, he's not saying that there are all these clandestine 
Christians scattered around. You just hadn't seen them yet. And they'll come out of the woodwork and all that. I don't want to gather all those people that are believers. That's not what he's talking about. He means I have many people that are going to believe in me. And this is amazing. I mean, this is, he says this of people that haven't even heard of Jesus yet. The Lord can still say, they are mine. How can he say this? Because God has planned to save him. Jesus can say, not I will bring many people. I have many people in this city. It's a pretty striking statement. And this is similar, though, to what he says back in John 6, verse 37, when he says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. I will lose none of them. I will raise them up on the last day. And so from texts like that, we learn that God chooses a people. He entrusts them to Christ. And Christ will so work in history that he will bring every one of them to himself. All the Father gives me shall come to me. And he won't lose any of them. And so in John 10, we hear something very similar. And well, basically, if you want to put what Jesus says to Paul in those words, he'd say to Paul, Paul, there are many here that the Father has given me, and they must come to me, and they will come to me. And you get the same thing in John 10. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. When he refers to this fold, he's likely talking about the Jews that presently believed in him. And when he says there are those uh, outside this fold, he's likely talking of the Gentiles. And that's why he emphasizes at the end, we have Jew, Gentile, but they're all going to be in one flock and they're all going to have one shepherd in the end. But again, you see, he says, I have other sheep. He calls them sheep before they even know him. Before they've ever heard the gospel. He still says, they're my sheep. And they will hear my voice. When I come to them through the preaching of the gospel, they will hear my voice. Or as he said earlier, they will come to me. And of course, by saying my voice, what Jesus means, not literally his voice, but it's a way of saying they will understand at that point. I will make sure they understand who I am. They will understand my sacrifice and my love and my humility and goodness and glory. And they will gladly trust me and follow me. They will hear my voice. These are sovereign words, right? These are sovereign words. These are kingly words. That they will hear me. They will follow me. They will come to me. And even right here in Acts, Luke has pointed out a similar idea a few chapters back. When Paul is in Pisidia, Antioch, and there when the Jews oppose him and he turns to the Gentiles like he did here, it says, Luke puts it like this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wait, how many? 
as many as were appointed to eternal life. Those are the ones the Father has given the Son that will come. Those are the sheep that will hear his voice. And here we see it happening. Those that were appointed believed. It's pretty magnificent right there to see it happening. And then later in chapter 16, we kind of see the inner workings in the heart of a person as it happens. There we have Lydia. We're in Philippi. He's down by the river. Uh, Paul has gone to preach to a worship gathering there. And this woman named Lydia, she's uh, from Thyatira. She sells expensive purple fabrics. And it says, as she's sitting there listening, or they're listening to Paul, the Lord opened her heart and she responded to the things that Paul was saying. So, to put it in terms of Jesus' words, I have other sheep, Lydia for for one, and she will hear my voice. Why? Because the good shepherd will be there and he will open her heart so that she can become one of his sheep and so that she can come to him. And he does this for every single one of us. It's the only reason any of us is a believer. It's what Isaac Watts wrote in his great hymn, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? He's he's saying, why were you gracious to me? Why would you allow me to understand who you are and to trust in you? You opened my heart to respond to the good news. We sang this earlier in, in our hymn. He, what, gave us ears and gave us eyes. It's saying the same thing. That's how we had eyes to see Jesus. That's how we had ears to hear, is he gave them to us. Perhaps the most stunning statement of this whole process is found in Second Corinthians 4, which you've heard me quote again and again because it is a favorite passage, and I get really more passionate about it every year of my life. Now, Paul writes there of a horrible tragedy, a sickening tragedy. He says that those who are perishing, that is, those who absolutely refuse to believe the gospel, do so... Because Satan, who rules over the whole system of sin and all people in it, in the world, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And why has he blinded their minds? What has he blinded them to? Paul says he blinds them to keep them from seeing the light of the good news about Christ's glory. The gospel is holding forth this beautiful, breathtaking love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. It declares to us this amazing God who comes to sacrifice himself to rescue us. It's an astonishing, heart-stopping story, but it meets us in as we are living in a true horror story ourselves. A horror story with a real monster who's blinded us 
And he has real power so that he, he keeps us from seeing that beauty that's right there before us. And that's true of every single one of us. If the horror story doesn't change, then in the words of Isaac Watts in that same hymn, we'll make a wretched choice and we would rather starve than come. That's what every one of us will do. We won't see it and we'll make a wretched choice and we'll starve instead of coming to this glorious Jesus Christ. But how does God overcome this? Why have we been able to see? Well, we've seen it, haven't we, that opens our eyes. He, he opens our heart to respond. He draws us to... But Paul puts it this way. He goes to, back to the first words of the first day of creation where God said, let there be light. I know some of you have been in a, a deep cave and they say, you know, they turn off the flashlight and you then realize what total darkness is. Well, that's what it was. That's all it was. And he spoke light into it. And Paul says, that same God with that same power who spoke into physical darkness, he spoke into our spiritual darkness. And he's shown in our hearts the beauty of the glory of Jesus. That's how we saw it. That's opening our hearts to respond to that beauty. And so, like the Lord opened Lydia's heart, he opened our heart. We heard his voice. He, in the words of this hymn we just sang, pitied us when enemies. Isn't that wonderful? We're his enemies. We hate him. We're blinded against him. We don't want him. And he sees us and pities us. How glorious. So, what does all this mean for us? Well, on the ground, we're all going to see the same kind of thing Paul saw. That is, some will believe, some won't. We will befriend unbelievers. We'll share the gospel over time or Perhaps we'll have opportunities at various times, you or me, to speak to different groups who have unbelievers about the gospel. And as all of us, uh, in so many different ways, reach out into this world to, uh, for the, with the gospel, many will believe and become a part of us, and many will not. And that will be hard. It may mean rejection and mockery at times. It can cost a friendship. It can cost a family relationship. It may mean having an unbelieving friend who for many years, for, for your whole life till you die, never does believe in Jesus. And that's hard to get close to someone, to love them, and then they don't ever believe as long as you're living. And of course, in many other cultures, and maybe it'll happen in ours, there can be terrible persecution, imprisonment, death. But I would say this, we must enter into the suffering of involvement. Paul certainly did. He goes on in, later in 2 Corinthians to list all the things that he went through in trying to minister the gospel in this world. And we can tell stories of people all over the world. But our form, whatever it is that we're facing, to face, to enter into the suffering of involvement, which may for some of us mean meet the people next door or across the street or down the street or whatever. 
In our first year of marriage, Kay and I did a, a clinical year in Memphis and at Independent Presbyterian Church. Now, a former pastor who was then a professor came and did a conference at this church. And one night we were with them and some other people and the professor's wife was talking to Kay and she said, yeah, I was in several pastorates and it was very hard, you know, loving people and they would leave or we would have to leave or then there was harmful, hurtful things done. She said, and I just learned over time just not to get close to people and that's what I advise you to do as well. Here she is, she hadn't been to seminary. We've had people advise us or, or, or say commend it to us. You should be an interim after you step down from, um, from Fort Worth Press, which is a possibility for us, but not for this reason. They said, because then you wouldn't have to be involved in anybody's life. And we're just like, that's, that's, not, a, that's not what we're doing. You know, we, we're in it. We, we want to be next to people. Um, so we have to say that any kind of ministry on any kind of level You or us, it's going to involve great joys and great heartaches. And there's really no alternative to that. You know, Paul, I've I've already brought this passage up before, but I bring it up again at the end of 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, we're this fragrance of Jesus in the world, this aroma that goes up to God. He says, but it's life to some people, and it's going to be death for other people. And, you know, you just feel yourself bracing for that difficulty. And Paul even himself says, and who's adequate for that? Who can face that? Who has the strength for that? In, in other words, I sure don't. But God's called us to it. And God will be with us. It's, it's, it's reminded me of this, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis about love in his book on the four loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. And that's what we're talking about, being vulnerable in our ministry to unbelievers. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal, right? Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries, Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. That's true for marriage. It's true for our friendships among ourselves. It's true for our friendships with unbelievers. It's a call to this vulnerability. Or as I put it, we have to enter into the suffering of involvement. And we don't know who will believe and who won't. We'll never know that. And we'll be shocked as friends of ours who were talking to us last night about an unbelievable conversion. And he admitted, I didn't think it could ever happen. But it did. And Paul, I don't know his heart, but he may have, not, he may have been surprised that the head of the synagogue 
became a believer. I mean, it's kind of surprising when you read it because the synagogues were so opposed. And overall, this one was too. But that part is God's part. He has a people and he will draw them. He will shine into their hearts. We simply do what Paul did. We speak the word and God will do his work. It's interesting how Paul summarizes the whole of his ministry in 2 Timothy 2. This is right toward the end of his life. And he says this about it, that I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Everything I do is for the sake of the elect. Everything I do is for those that the Father has given the Son. It's the sheep. It's those appointed to eternal life. I don't know who they are. I'll speak it to anybody. I don't know who they are. But he does say this. I do it because I know they're out there. I endure it because I know God has a people. And he says I do it so they can have this salvation in Christ and have eternal glory. That's why I do what I do. So Paul stayed, so we go. So we, we get the word out. We talk to friends. We be used in God's hands. The call is clear from Jesus to go and make disciples. And I would say to you in this last sentence, wherever the gospel takes us, whomever we may have opportunity uh, to speak to, and whatever joys or sufferings it may bring, Let's all lash ourselves to its mast and allow it to take us on the, grand, the, the great adventure that is in this life, and that is to live out and to make known the glorious, beautiful knowledge of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us grace. Help us. We are weak and fearful and selfish Oh, Lord, give us your spirit, the spirit that laid down your life for Jesus, for, for, for our salvation. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us your spirit. Amen.